You're listening to the Tony Stewart Podcast, where Tony interviews financial literacy advocates who are changing the conversation on money, so you can catch up on the latest trends and ideas in the world of financial literacy and education. Welcome to the Tony Stewart Podcast. I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Emily Kuchel. Emily is a senior financial planning consultant at eMoney Advisor. In this episode, we'll be discussing the importance of psychology and how we think about money. Emily, welcome to the Tony Stewart Podcast. Tony, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, I'm excited um, for our conversation. So, you know, let's dive on in. Um, I always like to start out by asking people, what is your origin story? How did you get started in financial wellness? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, you know, honestly, I think for me, it all started well before I even knew that it it began. Um, I grew up in a household that money, money was very tight when I was younger. And on some level, I think I understood that if I could make sense of money, I could, I could access more, whatever that meant, whether that was education or security. And once I realized that there was a path to study financial planning, I I jumped on that. That was really exciting to me. Um, But it was really during the time after I had graduated, when I was working with clients, that I realized financial wellness and financial learning is really really a lifetime process for a lot of people. Um, What I mean by that is, is our lives change. And it changes where we are questioning what we know about money, how to navigate money, but more specifically questioning the emotions and the feelings that come along with life's financial decisions. And so it's really kind of here at at the intersection of emotions and decision-making where I focus a lot of my time and work. So um, in a lot of ways, I think that it's it's been a bit of a, a lifetime involvement and looking to understand myself and my situation, but then ultimately looking to help understand others. Fantastic. Um, you know, that's, that's really interesting is because I think, you know, that is becoming much more prevalent in conversations is understanding that intersection of emotions and money and starting out with understanding our own thought processes and approaches to money. Um, you know, I know one of the things before you get to financial planning was you were a college professor, a college professor, easy for me to say. Um, how did your experience as a college professor impact how you view financial wellness? That's that's a really great question. So what's what's really great about academia is it offers so many wonderful opportunities to teach and to research and to be involved with students um, on campus. But in teaching a very large personal finance course on campus, you very quickly notice uh, the wide range of financial experience and knowledge that the students hold. So, So as a teacher and as a researcher who engages in Um, often what we call public scholarship, you really start to understand the importance of being able to translate a complex concept into more digestible terms. So one thing that I can tell you is that it can be quite challenging at times, uh, but I think one of the greatest rewards that many teachers will tell you, and, and even many professionals who work with clients, is 
the most rewarding part of that challenge is when you see somebody have that light bulb moment, when they have made that connection to something that you are trying to teach them, especially when it's something abstract, especially when it has the complexities that come along with financial planning. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to find application to their life where it has impact on them. And then you can start to to broaden that and expand it a little bit. Um, But especially with students, that was a message and a teaching that I really take with me today is that I have to find a way to um, deliver this this concept to, to others on quite a large scale. So as much as I can have a good understanding of something myself, it really doesn't matter unless I can translate that. I'm not really doing my job to help somebody build financial wellness and and do that by sharing my own financial knowledge in a way that um, has an impact on on them. So I think that is probably one of the greatest takeaways from from teaching students and especially teaching students from um, you know 18 to 24 in the classroom and trying to to navigate the various levels of financial knowledge. That's great. Actually, I think, you know, that's almost a drop mic moment is, you know, the the word translating um, for clients. I, I think that's something that's quite often missed, as you point out, is we have to put things in the terms uh, that our clients are using and the language that they're using um, instead of just using our preferred financial jargon. I, I know as a consultant is you know, when I hit that moment when a client really understood and they could you know, ex- ex- explain something back to me that I knew that, you know, it, everything was good and a client understood that. And I did a lot of work as a litigation consultant. And it's quite often what came up is that the client didn't really understand what they were being sold. It wasn't necessarily that the advisor or the company was a bad actor. is just the client didn't understand And that creates a lot of issues. That's a really good point. We actually, so we recently did some research and we were looking at the client and the advisor experience and really trying to match those up, essentially looking to see if um, what the advisor believed they were delivering the client was, of course, receiving. And one of the things that we noted in the research was clients were wanting advisors to speak to me in terms that are easily understandable. So I think that, again, really highlights this um, this effort of translation or the challenge of translation that comes along with, uh, with financial planning and, and conversations about financial planning. Yeah, 100%. That's that's a big thing. Um, you know, one of the other things that you do that I think is really just so important is the application of psychology. Um, why is psychology important to changing how we think about money? Yeah, that's so it is a topic that is really top of mind for a lot of people and questioning what is the purpose of psychology inside of a really technical and monetary profession like financial planning. Um, And I think one of the easiest ways to exemplify that is to think about any financial advisor or professional who has spoken to a client and seen that emotion come across their face or watch them adjust in their chair. They're having a physical response to a conversation that you're having. So 
if you think of an example, let's say that you are doing college planning with a client and all of a sudden they start to divulge to you that uh, their child has become a bit more rebellious lately. And then you start to understand that maybe the partners are having a difference in how much we should financially support uh, the child while they're pursuing their education. And, and all of a sudden you start to unearth these emotions from somebody that you weren't necessarily looking for. You were just simply trying to understand how they would like to start saving for this. But financial planning is inherently an emotional process. So as you look to put together a financial plan, you are asking people about their personal goals and um, in doing that, asking a lot about their personal values. And you will find out about the client's mindset that is um, helping to uh, decide on what those financial goals are. Now, one of the best ways that you can often have success as a financial planner is to merge the traditional advice with the elements of the behavioral finance or the emotional aspects. Because interestingly, what we know is people are, unfortunately, we are irrational. And what that does is it disrupts our decision-making process. So if we're having that irritation or annoyance, or we are getting into some type of conflict, let's say with our partner in the financial planning process, um, a skilled financial planner can help one, de-escalate some of that and start to unearth why is it that we're having these reactions and truly identify the best goal and the best actions for, for them. Um, the other piece of that is oftentimes our goals don't align with our actions. So let's say I want to live a particular lifestyle in retirement, but I'm spending every dime each month, which is clearly not going to allow me to have said lifestyle, there is something else underneath that that needs to be unearthed so that we can start to um, understand and create that behavior change. So really, psychology and financial planning, they are working together the entire time. Yeah, I, I think you hit on something, you know, that always resonates with me is that um, people are irrational. And you know, if we don't take that into account when we're doing planning, it's going to be hard. And, you know, understanding the client's motivations is when you talked about the two parents who are talking about their kids' college education, each parent may have a very different goal or values that they assign to going to college. And if you can't even rectify that in working with your clients, you know, or as a couple, it, it's going to be a struggle. Um, you know, so as part of that, is, is um, some of that also cultural, do you find, as well? Yeah, so what's really interesting, um, especially if we're looking at the, the couple dynamic, is when we look at what's, what's known as financial socialization, this is going to be the implicit or explicit learnings that we acquire over our lifetime. So from research, what we know is the greatest influencer of that oftentimes is going to be the parental figure in a child's life. So this is happening, again, kind of well before we even know that the learnings are taking place. So let's say that you observed parental conflict around money. Now, you may not be able to necessarily understand and conceptualize what it is that they are arguing about when it comes to money and finances. But what you do recognize is 
I am scared or I feel uncomfortable or uneasy when the topic of money comes up. So we internalize that. We start to try to make our own sense of that into what is known as um, inherited truths or expectations around money. And we start to place some of our values into that. So when you have couples coming together who are always going to have different experiences growing up, you are asking them to share those different socializations, those different learnings and experiences, and in many ways start to harmonize those together so that they can come together with the goal planning or what they see as you know their version of success in the financial planning process. But to your point, so much of that is going to be cultural, it's going to be influenced by education, socioeconomic status, a whole host of variables that can then play out um, that we didn't even necessarily know were there until the conversation comes up and you realize, oh, I really feel strongly about this. And I, I didn't even know that that existed until sometimes you're sitting in front of the financial professional and, and you're figuring it out there. Yeah. So how can people start to express those things to their advisors and how can advisors be more open to asking questions and to listening for those socioeconomic differences um, and cultural patterns and what their clients are expecting and how can people ask for it? That's a, that's a really great question. I think one of the, the best things that you can do is to, encourage client openness. So let them know that this is a place where you can come to learn, you can ask questions, you can share your curiosities, because oftentimes what we see as a barrier is clients will not seek out financial um, advice, or even once they get there, feel as though I am incompetent, I should know more other people obviously know better than I do. Look at the, the successes that they're having or, or what have you. But really, it should be a space where there is trust and respect and a sense of security in those conversations. And there are kind of two things that you can do really easily uh, right away to start implementing it into client conversations. One of those being, um, tell me more. When a client is starting to tell you a story about something or starting to express some of those experiences, rather than assuming you have grabbed all of that information, simply ask, tell me, or simply state, tell me more until they say, I, I think that's, that's kind of everything. The other thing that is a really simple technique is to add in the question of, did I miss anything? Was there anything today that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? So rather than assuming that I know exactly what's going on um, in your life or um, the questions that you had for me today, just rounding it out with, did I miss anything? Giving them the opportunity to reflect and to think and say, oh gosh, there was something that I, I wanted to bring up today um, or, or perhaps not. But again, it offers the opportunity for the client to continue leading the conversation rather than assuming that um, we know exactly what they want from the conversation. Yeah, I think that's so important is to give the client um, some ownership and leadership. So I, I found as an advisor that the best thing that I can do is to listen, uh, you know, as you point out, and let the client 
tell me what they're looking for. What are they looking to accomplish? And um, rather than coming in with a preconceived notion of, oh, this is a product that they're going to need, which is the, unfortunately the way we typically approach it in the financial services field. Um, you know, that, that we, you know, if we let the clients tell us what they need, they usually will. Um, right. So, so those are great tips. Um, one of the things you also talk about is financial illness. What is financial illness? Yeah, so I think financial illness can be looked at from kind of several different vantage points. Um, the place that I look at it the most from is looking at financial stress and financial anxiety and the impact that that has. Um, oftentimes, this is going to be underscored even more uh, during times of uh financial crises or um, as we're experiencing some of, so the aftershocks of, um, well, maybe not even aftershocks yet, but of a global pandemic, we saw the aftershocks of something like 2008. And there are fiscal consequences that unfortunately everybody has felt in, in some way, shape or form. During COVID, most people's financial or economic state was challenged or altered in some way, shape or form. So it really doesn't discriminate, but it's when we have this over extended or longer periods of time that that financial stress and anxiety can actually become debilitating. And we can see that expressed not only in, let's say our mental state, but we also can feel it physically, having physical exhaustion, not being able to sleep. Um, and essentially our body is starting to shut down from some of that that stress or that anxiety that has lived there for for some time. So what's interesting about this is money not only lives in the financial conversations that we have with a financial professional, but in fact it comes with us into our homes. It often comes with us into work as we're finding ourselves trying to think about which bills I need to pay or have I paid them while we're at work. So it, it travels with us and there's really not a place where there's, there's a start and stop. We can't leave it at the front door as we would like to, it, it comes with us. Um, so oftentimes there can be signs or signals of that. Um, and some of this may lead to even um, feelings of, of burnout, something similar to what we feel even with the exhaustion of let's say a job burnout. Um, and those can be, again, symptoms of fatigue or irritability or insomnia, um, especially when we have uh, these that are in excessive states. So um, it's really the idea of the impact of finances in, in so many areas of our life. Yeah, I know I've seen studies that show that, you know, people's, you know, stressing out about money can cause just a huge loss in worker productivity because, you know, I mean, let's face it, if you're distracted about paying your rent, it's going to be hard to concentrate on your job that day. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. There, so, um, there were some studies done out there that actually looked um, at questioning some of the executives in, in HR at larger corporations that were seeing the decreases in productivity due to financial stress and anxiety. And what they uncovered was, um, it was really seen as a personal problem rather than a company problem for a long time that that was not something that the company should be involved in. 
But now if you look across the board at a lot of larger companies and even smaller ones, they often have financial wellness programs associated with them. And that is in direct response to seeing the impact of the productivity and understanding that um, you can have essentially an unhealthy employee due to the financial stress and anxiety that they may hold. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's so fascinating. So, you know, one of the things is, you know, everybody talks about financial wellness and everything is how can an advisor start to actually integrate a financial wellness approach into their practice? Yeah, I think that it is going to be first about educating yourself, taking time to understand it uh, personally and professionally. Something that's advised um, typically in the therapeutic realm, so when therapists are being trained, but I think equally um, applies to financial advisors who are getting into financial psychology, is to first understand yourself, understanding your own influences, your own biases, your own emotions and behaviors related to money, because you can then be influencing your client based off of your own perceptions of money, which is really interesting. So first and foremost, educating yourself, whether that's through self-study, there are a number of certifications and trainings that are out there by universities and and professionals. There are, um, again, you know, kind of self-guided versions of this but making sure that you fully understand it. And then I think that this step, if you're a little uncomfortable with this, which a lot of financial planners are a bit apprehensive to starting to do this with their clients is if these conversations feel a little strange because they're new, it's okay to share that with your client by simply saying, you know, I was, I was reading this article and I just want to try something a little bit different. So it might seem a little funny right now, but I just want to ask you, this question and just start to try to slowly put that in and see the reactions of your clients and start to understand what is most comfortable for you and what is it truly, what is the information that is helpful to you as an advisor that would then be beneficial to that conversation? What are some of the the behaviors or curiosities that you have about people that you feel would be um, helpful in future conversations with your client. Um, so for instance, let's say that you uncover that um, maybe there's a, a lack of understanding around um, some financial topic. So knowing that in the next conversations, do a little bit of that checking in and say, hey, just want to make sure that this is making sense. If I'm saying this in a way that um that's that's understandable to you and checking in with them there. So slowly start to infuse um, those questions and those understandings. And again, offering up that this is a safe and secure place to ask me questions always. Well, that, that's great. Those are great tips. And it just made me think, you know, that most of the successful advisors that I've had known over the years are those who can talk to people right. and have a open communication with their clients, Um, you know, so these things are so important, you know, so to wrap up, what is your number one tip for changing how we think about money? I think the number one thing, especially as a trained professional, is to not make 
any assumptions, not necessarily make the assumption that I automatically know more or know better or know exactly what the client wants or needs. Because as you become um, an experienced professional, there are going to be situations that look very familiar to previous situations. And we can find ourselves tripping into, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to say and what I'm going to do because I've, I've seen this or I've seen something similar. To always remember that the client really is their own financial expert in this situation, that they know their financial story better than anybody else. And so ultimately, we're looking to learn from them. That's great. Learn from your clients. That's that's wonderful advice. So Emily, where can people learn more about you? Where they can, can they check out some of your research and your writing, all the wonderful things that you're doing? Yeah. So of course, always um, feel free to check me out on LinkedIn and contact me. I'm always happy to talk about the subject um, and and many more. So feel free to always uh, check it out there. Um, There is a link to my research and my work on that page. And then, um, as you mentioned, I am affiliated with eMoney Advisors. So going out uh, to their website, they have a great uh, blog, which is our Heart of Advice blog as well. Um, And I know that there are wonderful blogs out there for for many people. Um, So to supplement those where we um, again, kind of go through a lot of these these topics and share our voice with the advisors who may um, be dealing with some of these these same situations. So, always happy to talk about it, and I'm I'm so thrilled that we have the opportunity to talk today. Yeah, Emily, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I um, really appreciate it. And just for everybody who's watching and listening, is the Heart of Advice blog is really an amazing blog, you know, with people really thinking about the future of money. Um, So I highly recommend it. Emily is one of the contributors uh, to the blog. And that's where I first read some of your stuff. Um, So I I recommend it to everyone. So uh, yeah, so thanks again for coming on. And uh, for everybody out there, thank you for uh, watching or listening to this episode of the Tony Stewart podcast. Until next time.